Caprioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 205, Villain and Hero. This week, we're going to discuss probably one of the more controversial figures that we've talked about in this podcast, and I think it's something we will have to come across and discuss in greater detail as we go through this podcast and reach into this era. So keep that in mind as we go through. This will not be the last time that we have this discussion, but we're going to talk about one particular individual and his contributions to Welsh history. So what makes someone a hero? Is it the way they live, like a sainted person who lives a life representing their beliefs? Is it someone who takes on a challenge, such as landing on the moon, reaching some fabulous milestone, reaching the highest heights, winning a major battle, you know, or is it someone who created the computer that gets a person to the moon or the person who built the sail that takes the person to a new land? Or is it the person who ensures that the astronauts can leave the earth and return safely? Who's the hero in that consequence? And is a hero just someone who does something extraordinary to achieve a goal? What is your definition? Obviously, there will be specific people who might be no-brainers as heroes, but even then, people might debate them for reasons that the majority might not even agree with. But in a social media world, it can be difficult to have discussions like these, but I still think it's important for us to mark and remember that just because they're difficult to have, they're still important to have, and they are consequential, both to us in the current day and how future people will perceive them. So conversely, who is a villain? Likely that's easier to describe because, of course, initially names like Adolf Hitler come to mind. You can't call him anything but a villain based on what he did. But also, Joseph Stalin could easily fit in that category just because he was on the winning side against Hitler does not make him any less villainous. And there are many people on so-called right and wrong sides who could fall into those categories. There are, however, a number of complicated individuals that have statues and honors, but like Stalin and Hitler, some would call them villains. Think of Edward I. Is King Edward a villain? If you're a student of Welsh or Scottish history, you're likely to say yes. Yet in England, there is some writers and some educators and historians who would argue that Edward is not a villain. Edward brought about better administration. He made a much more solid legal and enforcement organizations to help protect against crime. Finally, he gave us the form and function of some of the most important modern concepts of what we call the parliament and how it is used this day. Does that excuse him from his other sins? Does this feel like Mussolini keeping the trains running on time level of justification? Or does it show that a ruler has a complicated set of actions, like most humans, that he can be a good king for England, but a complete villain who tried to destroy two kingdoms for his own conquest, and both comments can be correct? 
as we get more information and more viewpoints, we are finally reaching a richer and more complicated story. History has always been very narrow in our viewpoints. We had very few objects of reference for winners and losers for the past. Well, that's coming to an end. We are going to gain viewpoints from people who were not in the special population that actually could read and write that were not somehow elevated because of their elite status or the fact that they happened to have biographers that were willing to write stories for them because they got paid for it. There will be people who will write their own stories who won't necessarily fit into all of those fancier categories. And as we gain more details of these lives, these people can, of course, point out issues and behaviors that are both shocking and horrifying amongst people who may have been in the past lauded as heroes. Of course, in some cases, these issues were either covered up or unknown or just ignored in the light of other things that had sort of colored other people's attitudes. In an era of colonialism, more and more uncomfortable discussions must be had about those in the past and how it influences our opinion in this modern day. With that in mind, let's move to an example of this very problem who is of Welsh birth. In Cardiff City Hall, there has stood until recently in the so-called Hall of Heroes a statue to Sir Thomas Picton, a man born in Wales who achieved a great deal of fame for his brave actions at the Battle of Waterloo in which he became the only British general to die. But, if you lived in Wales in 2020, during the debates about his actions and the actions of past men, who were involved with, either intrinsically or even parenthetically, with the slave trade, and how statues towards them and for them seem to be out of step with modern ideals. This political discussion has involved how we value history and how we judge it going forward. I'm not going to try and talk in depth of the merits of these reasons. I think there is merit in the arguments as far as that goes, and I think we always must have a discussion of how we display and talk about our history. I don't think we ignore the warts, but I think it's important that we remember that there are positive and negative reasons to people it doesn't mean we need to laud them either. So that's something to keep in mind. And Thomas Picton is definitely one of those. So let's start out from the beginning, shall we? Thomas Picton was the seventh of 12 children born to Thomas Picton and Cecil Powell of Poidston Hall, Pembrokeshire, Wales. He was born in Haverford West area, probably on the 24th of August, 1758. Picton's family were of the upper to middle class level. They were landholders, which allowed Thomas to live a comfortable life and receive a, in quotes, proper education. He would, as a young adult, begin a fairly typical military career, something that we've discussed in the past about how many people from Wales and the greater UK, were now becoming involved in the military. And in 1771, he was made an ensign, serving in the 12th Regiment of Foot. 
During a posting in Gibraltar, he gained promotion to the rank of captain. However, when the regiment returned to Britain in 1783, it was disbanded. Hearing the news of the disbanding, his men mutinied against it, probably because of the loss of position and jobs, the money involved, all those kind of things. Picton intervened, and as a result of his immediate and forceful actions during the mutiny, it was squashed. However, despite this, he still lost his position, as did the rest of these men, and, regardless, was now without a career. Because of this, he spent the next 12 years living on his farmer's land, likely working for him, as he waited for a new opportunity to arise. A new position was eventually offered for a post in the British colonial possessions in the West Indies. Captain Picton became the aide-de-camp to Sir John Vaughan, the garrison commander. Arriving in the Caribbean, it was suggested that Vaughan had known Picton to some degree previously, which helped explain why he got the position. Largely, leadership values and merit were not a thing that was generally given positive ideals by the British military. It was much more about how financially capable you were. Could you buy your station, your, your honors, so thus you could afford to be a captain, a lieutenant, a major, a colonel, all of those different positions. So it was unusual to have someone who could be promoted on merit. And as I said, buying your position, which is a much more common route for the upper class and the officer's core, something that really would not change until the next few decades, but the British army was still featured with it. This was not uncommon for a lot of European armies at the time. Picton served as captain of the 17th Regiment of Foot, Shortly afterwards, he was then promoted to Major of the 58th Regiment of Foot in a period where major conflict was happening often in this area of the Caribbean as the European powers sought to control the sugar plantations, which were delivering key financial benefits even at this point. The British were aggressively using these conflicts in Europe to seize more and more of the islands. St. Lucia was one of their targets, and... On a number of occasions, the Britain had tried to seize them, including it flipping sides during the War of Independence as the British captured it, but later gave it up after the war in the treaty in 1783. Just over ten years later, the British were on the attack again, and with Picton and his regiment, they invaded the island in 1795. As the British briefly held that island, they would continue to try and gain more control of the area. They would end up losing it, this time by locals, both slaves and others, who would turn on the British and force them off the island only about a year later. Picton, because of his actions during this combat, was promoted to lieutenant colonel, and this happened after the capture of St. Vincent. The crux of Picton's problematic history begins in 1797, when he is appointed to his highest position as governor of the newly taken islands of Trinidad. 
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. For the next five years, he held the island with a garrison he considered inadequate against the threats from internal unrest and reconquest by the Spanish, who they had taken the island from. He ensured order by vigorous action, as it would be called, viewed variously as rough-and-ready justice or arbitrary brutality or sadism. Picton was also accused of executions of dozens of slaves usually in fairly minor cases, as well as the trade of slaves, which, of course, was partially behind his growing fortune. Swansea's university, Dr. Leighton James, explained, Trinidad had recently been seized from the Spanish, and Picton felt vulnerable, both from the threat of reconquest and the fact that a number of slaves had greatly outnumbered his small force. End quote. This, of course, was something that had been an issue in Haiti, where slaves there had attacked outnumbered slaveholders and took back the half of the island of Santo Domingo. And in the process, the fear of this repeated situation grew and, of course, happened with St. Lucia, which, again, meant that the British were very worried about it and thus Picton being ordered to do whatever he needed to to control the island, seemed to justify his behavior. With that in mind, as James said, he maintained control through brutality and adopting the philosophy of let them hate me so long as they fear, end quote. 
During his time as governor, he made a lot of money off of this slave dealing, but it was his role as an authority figure which led to his controversy. In 1801, he would be made Brigadier General. However, his profiteering, which had continued, had created relationships with a number of the locals, one of whom was Rosetta Smith, an African Trinidadian who was a slave trader herself and well invested in the business. Smith and Picton would have a relationship which went beyond business sense as they would also have four children. This would, of course, create a series of controversies and financial profiteering by both parties. The advantage, of course, being the governor of the island meant that he had control over so much of the details of what went in and out of the island. So his graft would, of course, create even more opportunities for him to make money, something that, of course, would benefit Smith as well. However, in 1801, problems began for Picton when a 14-year-old girl, Louisa Calderon, was accused of being involved in a theft of around 500 pounds, something that would be a massive amount of money at the time. The young girl had been a mistress of another slaveholder who, as you can imagine, would make that situation even more disturbing before we get any further into the actual details of the case. And the fact that she was accused of this money with not exactly massive amounts of evidence became a bit problematic as well. The investigating magistrate sought and was granted permission from Picton to extract a confession through a military method of torture called picketing. Widely used as a punishment in the British Army, picketing involved a victim being suspended off the ground by the wrist, with their only means of supporting their weight being to stand on an upturned peg. The peg was not sharp enough to break skin and inflict permanent injury, but it did cause the victim excruciating pain, as anyone could understand. Up until then, Picton had generally been ignored by the public back home, but when this came to light, it proved that he, in quote, quoting Dr. James, authorized the use of torture to extract confession of theft from a free mulatto or mixed person. It provoked outrage even amongst those in this much more brutal time. Already unpopular for his ruthless treatment, the incident was investigated by a commission headed by William Fullerton, and in 1803, Picton was ordered home to stand trial in London. Fullerton and others claimed that Smith was the chief instigator of Picton's torturous regime, basically because it suited their purpose to make him look weak and that he was dominated by a woman, especially someone who was not of the same race would add to more salacious behavior and thus make him look even weaker. Obviously, all of that is purely ludicrous. Picton had proven for many years that he was more than capable. He didn't need to be dictated to by someone else and had proven that he was willing to go as far as he needed to. Professor James, who we're going to quote from extensively here, 
said that the case took two years to get going, and because of its shocking nature and salacious stories, brought out the crowds in ways that it might not have done otherwise. To quote the professor, pamphlets and newspapers were doing the rounds, and there were even etchings for sale depicting what the girl had undergo on Picton's orders. We're going to talk a lot about the way imagery and writings were used to create salacious, sexually charged images that were, in effect, without being too blunt, Victorian's versions of, uh, well, it's hard to say without saying it, pornography. And we'll get into this in a small amount of detail without being gross in another episode. But it is important to understand that this was this salacious stories and gossip and then adding to it the the drawings of these kind of things just made it even more radical and and slanderous. Garrow's involvement as one of the pamphleteers combined with the fact that this was an exotic appearing girl, again, this is quoting Dr. James, Miss Calderon was brought over specifically to give evidence in person, meant that the trial attacked, attracted unprecedented interest. At the heart of it was a clash of different times and values. Britain was becoming more enlightened and liberal while the reality of life in the colonies remained dangerous and violent, end quote. In the end, no one really was held to account. Although convicted, Picton later had the verdict overturned, arguing that Trinidad was still subject to Spanish law, for a very interesting justification, which permitted the use of torture, unlike the rest of Britain. In the meantime, he had risen to prominence as a commander in Wellington's army, fighting in the Peninsular War against Napoleon's French military forces. Thus, he was adding honors upon honors while still fighting these legal battles. And the reason behind this whole argument about hero or victim comes about because on June 16th, 1815, Picton was badly injured at the Battle of Quatre Bras, but hid his wounds from his men. Two days later, at the Battle of Waterloo, he was shot through the temple by a musket ball repulsing a French advance which had threatened to break the British line. After his death, in order to honor his role in this war, a monument was commissioned after a public memorial to Picton was erected in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. A second such monument which was then funded through public subscription, was built in Camarthen, in which King George IV himself contributed a hundred guineas to. There has been, as I said, a great deal of controversy over the role of Picton. I think it's important to discuss these people who had roles to play in both the so-called best and worst sides of the British Empire, they were at the thin edge of what would become the scramble for Africa half a century later, and they would represent the elitist attitudes that caused this. Trinidadian historian Claudius Fergus addresses the Picton legacy this way. He needs to be seen in a historical perspective. The position in which he was placed was fragile. He was a hard man, and he was a tough nut. 
and he was a military man, end quote. James, by comparison, has this to add, which I think is a good way to look at this legacy. I'm not sure it helps to talk in terms of whether Picton should be celebrated in place names, etc., but I do think that they act as a talking point. When you sit down for a pint in a pub called Thomas Picton, you ask, why is it named after him? And as a consequence, you learn about Louisa Calderon and the events behind the name. If you forget the names, you forget history, and I think that would be a terrible shame. So I'm going to go back a little bit on my own historical background and talk a little bit about this in a very general sense. In Canada, as in Wales, we have a legacy of, some would call them former heroes, who may be viewed as proper villains in this time period. I think it's important to remember that their crimes, as well as their perceived good deeds, you can't forget one without the other. Thomas Jefferson, for example, wrote the Declaration of Independence as a slaveholder. Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, was responsible for a number of problematic policies surrounding the treatment of Aboriginal people in Canada that could be accurately called genocide. We need to remember that the warts that they have don't simply get resolved or melted away by their other deeds, which may be perceived as good. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Also, if you'd like to help out the podcast through financial means, if that's possible, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.